Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Neon, the podcast that reveals the history behind pop culture. I'm Jem Daduchu, and this time round on Neon, we're looking at Westworld, which means we're of course going to be having a conversation about cowboys and the evolution of the cowboy story, as well as... Are we actually still in love with the idea of the cowboy? Because there's a history to the history and even myth-making of cowboys. I think I've said that word enough, but don't worry. We're also going to be talking about, naturally, the Terminator and Jurassic Park a little bit. And strangely, we're also going to be talking about the LaBelle 1888 rifle. With that in mind, before we get going, don't forget to click subscribe, to leave a review on whatever app you're listening to this on, and if you want to get in touch with us, have a look at neonpodcast.com and neonpodcast on both Twitter and Facebook. To go here, Brenda, this guy has been creeping around since at least 1700. You have been here for three and a half hours. How many different ways do you want me to tell the same story? Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty cool place. I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot? As your leader, I encourage you from time to time, and always in a respectful manner, to question my logic. Now to run a computer check on this tape and the professor. Dodge this. The tracks go off in this direction. So, Westworld, where to begin with this one? Well, let's start with Michael Crichton, shall we? If you don't know who Michael Crichton is, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, He was one of the biggest, most prolific, in the sense of different projects, not in terms of raw books, writer out there 
who also directed movies and adapted his works to screenplays. And some of his works are some of the biggest movies in cinema history. Westworld's one of them. It was a movie back in 1973 and very quickly got picked up for a sequel, Future World, in 1976. Jurassic Park is perhaps his best well-known work, which of course got turned into the Steven Spielberg movie. But he also made a number of books that were turned into films, particularly in the 1990s. Things like Sphere and Rising Sun. Some of these aren't nearly as entertaining or as good adaptations as something like Jurassic Park. But the point is, we're talking about a man who understood that some of his stories, and and the groundbreaking first one he created was something called the Andromeda Strain. And there's a funny story about that. Apparently, he was in a hospital. Andromeda Strain's about an outbreak of a virus. And he was sitting in a hospital room And he happened to hear, it was such a big hit, pretty much everybody was reading it, and he overheard a couple of doctors critiquing the science in the book that he had written, and he didn't tell them that it was his book, which I think is quite polite and nice. But anyway, so Michael Crichton, sadly, at 66, he died in the year 2008. He he passed away 10 years ago. But he is a huge influence in how we see cinema and pop books, okay? Crichton was never aiming to challenge somebody like Dickens or Shakespeare or you, you get the idea. You know, he, he was never trying to create the next war and peace or something like that. What he wanted to do was entertain you. He wanted to tell you a good, interesting story, sweep you up on his idea. Sometimes they were perhaps a bit more grounded thrillers. Sometimes they were pure science fiction like Timeline, where people go back in time uh, to the Middle Ages and get involved between the English and French forces in France. The Now, the, the thing is, on that one, I just have to briefly pause on that one. I haven't read the book. I have seen the film. And oh, that's a bad film. That's a very bad film. But I just want you to play this little game in your head. So you are going back to the Middle Ages. It's a violent time. And you're not meant to take anything with you. You're just meant to go with some time-specific, era-specific clothing on you, and that's it. Off you go. You might be tempted to take a weapon with you because you might want to defend yourself from a marauding bandit or a knight in shining armor. So my question is, what would you take with you? Now, it has to be small. You know, no point taking a huge machine gun with you. They would spot that as you got into the time machine. So it has to be small and it has to be usable back in the in the day. Now, I would argue that pretty much everybody would take some kind of pistol with them. But there is a character in this movie who inexplicably, of all the things they could have taken with them to protect themselves, I can't believe I'm saying this, and this is really in the movie, takes a hand grenade. That's a one-use thing. And you can't use it in the close to yourself. And anyway, for contrived reasons, he ends up blowing himself up and also potentially destroying the time machine. And just, just dumb, really, really dumb. Moving on, says Jim. And I say this a lot in in the old. So 
Michael Crichton is, you can tell I'm a bit of a fan, but what's interesting is that lots of people think because he is best known as an author, well, clearly, if he was involved in Westworld, that was a book first. And indeed, that's what I assumed. And I saw Westworld, not when it came out in 1973, but as a little kid years later on TV, and I was absolutely hooked on it. So the basic concept about Westworld, which was a film first, it was not a book. Crichton didn't think it would work as a book, and so because he'd already had a huge hit both as a book and as a movie with the Andromeda strain, he was allowed to write the screenplay and direct the movie of Westworld. I mean, that's pretty precocious. We're talking, for the time, a big-budget movie with a major star. Yul Brynner was the man with the black hat, or the man in black, and he was kind of the bad guy robot in Westworld that you would obviously have fun sort of shooting down, as it were, beating the bad guy, beating the black hat. So that is the background to the movie Westworld, but let's talk about the assumption that it makes, and actually how it sort of jumps ahead of the TV series Westworld. The idea is this, that in the future, well, we've all, well, I say we all, probably we haven't, but most of us have been to some kind of theme park, fun fair, something like that. We go on thrill rides and we like being sort of transported to another world. And undeniably, the company that does this the best is Disney. When you go to Disneyland, they make really sure that if you're in, let's say, future world, you can't possibly see bits of the adventure world or something like that. So that wherever you are, wherever you look, it all looks futuristic. It all looks like a jungle. It all looks like an Arabian bazaar. And everybody's dressed appropriately in terms of staff, not in terms of the, the customers. And it creates a wonderful sense of emergence and, and immersiveness, I mean. It's lovely and wonderful. And all Westworld does is just take that and extrapolate, basically saying that you go to a world uh, or you go to a theme park, and it doesn't have human employees, it has robot employees. So you could have a fist fight with one of these robots, and the robots are designed to basically, well, not so much not fight back, they're not going to stand like a mannequin, but they can't hurt you. So you can then carry out your ultimate fantasy, basically, of being a cowboy, riding around the Wild West, shooting bandits and all that kind of good stuff. And in a way, you could say that's a little bit like what video games have ended up being. You get to play your fantasy and the, that, the stuff on the screen, no matter how big and scary it is, it simply can't hurt you. It's a great idea. But here's the way that Michael Crichton picked up on it. We're talking about 1973. But even he recognized that cowboys by then had sort of lost their luster. All the kids that had grown up and were now adults in 1973 had grown up on the Clint Eastwood movies, on the John Wayne movies, on repeats of things like High Noon on TV. Cowboys were definitely still a thing in the 1970s, but there was also a medieval world. So you could go there and sort of have medieval feasts and do medieval jousting and things like that. And there was a third world, which I believe somebody might correct me if I'm wrong, which was a, like a Roman world as, as well. So whereas most of the action happens in Westworld, presumably there was also medieval world and Roman world, and because this is an expensive thing to pull off, and a little bit like Game of Thrones, Westworld is 
uh, eye-wateringly expensive production to put on. And don't get me wrong, all the money's on screen. And what I love about both Game of Thrones and Westworld, you know, HBO does create great TV shows, is it they don't just try and dazzle you with the special effects or look at all the money in this scene. They get great actors. They got interesting things to say in their well-polished scripts. It's just all, it all works. But because it's so expensive, it is basically all in Westworld. At the end, in the last episode of series one, don't worry, no spoilers for series two here. At the very end of series one, they go behind the scenes, and you've already seen behind the scenes, but they do stumble across a few samurai, and you see samurai world just in the background. Now, that's all we've seen of it, but it does point out there is more than Westworld in this complex. And actually, I am going to come on to the economics of that, this of Westworld and the, and the idea behind it in a little bit. But let's go back to the original movie of 1973 movie. So... You have a number of antagonists, and, and basically they go around this park, and they, you know, they're having fun, enjoying themselves. And yes, I am trying to keep my clean rating. There is a certain adult theme as well. If all the all the robots are there to sort of make your fantasies come true, it may not just be shooting Wild West. It might be meeting that girl of your dreams, who just happens to be a robot. Okay, and there's certainly a lot of that in the new TV series. But anyway, what happens is that the Yulbrinner bad guy cowboy robot goes rogue and starts attacking people for real. And actually, one of the things about this 1973 movie is, look, undeniably, we're talking about 1973, four years before Star Wars, for example. But it's one of the earliest movies to show computer graphics. It's not the earliest, and actually there are early computer graphics in 2001 Space Odyssey, which came out in 1968. But particularly when you see things from your Brinner's point of view, you get this kind of schematic-y type of sort of 3D, this is what a computer robot would look like, or how it would see the world type viewscape, which was revolutionary. And because he's a robot, an android, he's kind of unstoppable. Now, if this reminds you of another movie, well, yeah, even I, when the first time I saw Terminator, thought, this is a little bit like Westworld. You have an unstoppable machine. You sometimes see things from its point of view, with sort of early computer graphic-y stuff, with like data trickling down the sides, like I guess a computer might need. And so there is absolutely DNA from one to the other. A lot of people talk about La Jete, which is a, a short French film only using stills, so still photos, one after another in black and white. And it's about this guy in an apocalyptic world who travels back in time and he's trying to fix the past so that the future will be better. And that's seen as the starting point, both of Terminator and also 12 Monkeys, the movie. Oh, that's by the by. And again, there is definitely DNA there. But you can't deny the idea of this unstoppable bad guy robot with this point of view is also clearly an influence to something like the Terminator. But what's interesting is Yul Brynner plays it really well. He is menacing. But Arnold Schwarzenegger, look, there is no reason why the Terminator should have a thick Austrian accent or why the Terminator should look like a bodybuilder. After all, it is an infiltration unit. Um, but it works. Schwarzenegger, back in the early 80s, kind of looked like a tank. 
apparently they were thinking about sort of getting really sort of well-known, well-respected actors to potentially play the Terminator, but none of them would have done what Arnold Schwarzenegger would have done. Uh, Indeed, um, you know, it is interesting. To, it's always interesting to see who might have played the the you know other roles in the past. For example, you know, you've got Tom Selleck potentially would have been Indiana Jones, and uh, yeah. So uh, it's, it is interesting to see what might have been in some of these situations. Uh, I digress on this one. So the point is. There's definitely a link between Terminator and Westworld. But even Michael Crichton in the 1970s, because he had, yeah, you can also go to the medieval world and things like that, recognize that cowboys had sort of lost their luster. I guess if you were a kid growing up in post-war America, you know, there were things like Howdy Doody, which was a sort of little kid's show. So when you were a little teeny tiny kid, you'd watch a cowboy thing. Then you'd go to the cinema and you'd see a John Wayne flick. And, you know, there were all kinds of Westerns like Bonanza and the High Chaparral and things like that on TV. And so kids wanted, you know, kids would literally play. And I'm well aware that this is a derogatory term. But in the 1960s, there was sort of nothing seen wrong about this. Kids would literally play cowboys and Indians or cops and robbers in the playgrounds. Uh, yeah, well, I should be using the term Native Americans, but that's what people would have called it back in the, in the 60s. So that used to absolutely be a thing. But speaking as a man with children, I am, look, I, I love my films. And actually what I've been doing is I've been going back and I've been showing my kids older, age-appropriate movies. And they love things uh, like The Italian Job or... Th- things like you know, some of the John Wayne movies, Sands of Iwo Jima, they've seen. That's a black and white movie, and they they get that, and they thought it was quite powerful when he dies at the end. Spo- again, spoiler for a movie that came out in the 1940s. So they've, they've seen sort of some of the classic John Wayne films. Uh, they've seen Where Eagles Dare. Um, so they've seen lots of the old films from the 50s and 60s, and they love them because a good film is a good film. Simple as that. Um, And so they have an opinion on something like John Wayne. And yet all my other nieces and nephews don't even know who John Wayne is. And when we went to Madame Two Swords, everybody walks past the John Wayne waxwork. And yet he was a huge movie star for 30, 40 years. And yet my kids sort of saw him, recognized him instantly and said, can we have a photo next to the John Wayne waxwork? Which I kind of felt proud about. But the thing is, cowboys, I think people are still interested in it. But it's not a cultural movement anymore. I think kids nowadays, particularly when they're playing video games, yes, there are things like Red Dead Redemption. And later on this year, Red Dead Redemption 2 is coming out and that will be a huge hit. But it's because it's going to be a good game from a very good publishing house. And it's probably going to have some interesting things to say. But cowboys absolutely have lost their luster. and. If we are then talking about Westworld in the future, it makes no sense why that's the central point. People are not, you know, if my kids are the old people in Westworld, let's just say, they haven't grown up desperately wanting to live out their fantasies on the on the wild frontier. That's not really a thing. That wouldn't really have made much sense to, to theme in the future. And this is where I come to the economics of Westworld, because Westworld in the TV show is huge. It's gigantic, okay? And 
They have massive earth-moving equipment when they want to re-sculpt some of the park into a new storyline. They can create very large lakes, and that doesn't even impact on most of the areas that are still being used in the in the stories and in the theme park. And while it is specifically said that this is for rich people only, I don't know whether I picked this up from the internet or whether it's mentioned in the in the TV show, but there does seem to be a figure thrown around about $20,000 a day. And that sounds like a lot of money until you start thinking about certain things. Well, it's in the future. So $20,000 in the future is not as much, is won't buy you as much as $20,000 right now because of inflation, okay? <laughs> Hang on, I thought this was a pop culture uh, podcast. Why are you talking about inflation figures? Sorry, I'll move on. But then you see the havoc that the guests cause. You know, the human beings, when they turn up in Westworld, they do gunfights and they they shoot the robots. And the robots, it, it, the big difference, if you like, between this 1973 version and the modern version is the robots... You know, they well, clearly they look very realistic in both, but the robots sort of spurt blood, and they they the, the exact mechanics of these robots in Westworld, the TV show, is kind of poorly explained because they are they keep calling them robots, and they're definitely synthetic, but when they bleed and they seem to have. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary intestines and why when you cut the, the scalp off do they actually have sort of a surface of a brain on them but then you have to go underneath the brain to get to the robot bit nobody's going to see that bit okay it, it just it, it's it's a, you know so you have this robot that's super expensive with a super expensive processor in it and i mean they say at one point each processor each cpu is worth three billion dollars okay maybe that's what it is on the market it may not costed them that much to to make but even so you're then going to sort of like create uh, surround it in a sack of red dye so if it gets shot in the head it sort of spurts blood there and 
you know, each robot would cost billions, clearly, to to create. And yet, you know, the guests shoot them. They're sort of cut, shot to pieces, and then they're taken downstairs, and then they're rebuilt, and then they're out ready to go the next day. You need a small army. I mean, if you look at the uh, Magic Kingdom in Florida, I believe that's the single biggest employer in a, in a theme park or in a, a one-off site in the world, and that's got seventy thousand staff. So. And Westworld is so much bigger, and they need, you know, they need sort of top level security, and they need people rebuilding these robots, and just twenty thousand dollars per person per day does not cover the costs of renting all that land or buying all that land alone, let alone all the R and D and trying to stop people's trying to steal your tech and all this kind of stuff. So, look, Jem, you're getting very excited about the economics of a non-existent business. I know, but it just amuses me that this is clearly aimed at adults. But the person behind the scenes writing this stuff—it is interesting that when you know, writers, an awful lot of writers, have never worked in business, and yet most of us work in businesses, and we understand profit, loss, margins, things like that. We might even have been sat in very boring business reviews or quarterly reports and things like that, and so. When you see it trying to be explained by somebody who has done the research on things like what was the Wild West like, but hasn't done the research on what an annual report is and what a P&L sheet is, some of it is almost like a child explaining what a business does, and it makes no sense whatsoever. You know, the unbelievable stuff has been more carefully explained than the basic business logic of why would you have Westworld in the first place? It doesn't seem to make any money. Anyway, regardless. Let's instead talk a little bit about some of the guns in the in it, because as I said, they spend their time trying to make things look quite realistic. There is that lever-activated rifle, which you everybody's seen in the Western film, and it's called a Winchester 73. And it isn't exactly semi-automatic, because you have to do that sort of lever of the handle to put in another round. But it was, in a way, it was very late to the scene of the cowboy era. And I guess at some other point, and maybe another podcast, I'll find something else to talk about with cowboys. It is worth pointing out that cowboys didn't last for very long, okay? It's a very short era, but it's the time of mythology in America. It's how the West was won. Pretty much everything you know about the Wild West isn't actually true, but that doesn't change the fact that it's been turned into a very romantic period in American society. Now, as I said, the kids today might have moved on to space marines or video games or superheroes, but that doesn't change the fact that it is sort of seen with rose-tinted glasses, much like, and but you know, before we get too sniffy about that in the West, in Europe, well, we kind of do the same thing with something like the Roman Empire or the Middle Ages, where it's all about jousting and chivalry. And no, it wasn't. It really wasn't. But, you know, I think that perhaps in Europe, we might all like to dress up. Do you know what? I'm going to tell you right now, on this podcast. If anybody's listening, please help me live out this fantasy. I've always wanted to wear full plate armor, okay? I've put on a male shirt, I've put on uh, a helmet, but I've never worn the full high medieval kit, and I'd be fascinated to do that. And would I pay for it? Maybe I would. If there's any armorers out there who would like to let me put on their stuff, I'm your man. Maybe we can do a podcast about it, okay? But... In America, I get why cowboys have been turned into the same kind of mythology. 
But as I said earlier, that mythology is sort of fading as the generations move along. But we've got, I'm going to tell you about uh, two classic guns. I've already mentioned the Winchester 73, but it's interesting. Sometimes you see the Winchester 73 in movies which are set perhaps during this U.S. Civil War. The Civil War ended in 65. So 65 to 73 is close, but it is eight years into the future and nobody had that gun. Okay. But you do also have uh, the ubiquitous, yes, you see it everywhere, Colt Single Action Army Revolver, quite often referred to as the SAA. And most of the characters have uh, an SAA. And it's just the quintessential revolver. And, uh, you know, just do a Google search for it and you'll see that and go, yeah, that's what a revolver looks like. Um, but they also began production in 1873. So if you ever see one of those in a Civil War movie, that's wrong too. And it was one of the most successful revolvers ever created. I mean, yes, you've also got something like the, uh, the Colt Peacemaker as well. Um, that was a little bit earlier. But these were, it is worth pointing out, I get in trouble when I sometimes misuse words, that these were smooth bore guns. When you sort of read about real shootouts, people were almost on top of each other and still missing. Because when somebody uses the term rifle, rifling is a thing you do to a gun to make it more accurate. And basically, smooth bore means the barrel is just a tube. That's it. And as the bullet or pellet or buckshot or whatever it is travels down that tube, it might bang against the sides, but basically be blown out the front. But by the time it's blown out the front, it could go in almost any direction. And when you get things like musket fire, when you've seen the old movies of lines of guys in red jackets blasting away in line, it's like, why are they doing that? They're so easy to hit. It's because a line of that gunfire, only a tiny proportion of that will hit the other guys. And if they were all doing it individually, sort of like one standing up, one sitting down, one's on to the left, one's to the right, you know, there's just, you just need enough musket balls to fly in the same direction to just hit something because they didn't have the rifling of their guns. Now, what is rifling, Gem? Basically, it's a spiral groove down the inside of the, of the barrel. And what that means is as the bullet, pellet, whatever, flies out the barrel, that groove and all the gases start making that bullet spin. And once it's spinning, it's more stable. It goes in the same traje trajectory for longer. So in other words, it, it, it makes a weapon far more accurate. And a lot of these guns weren't that accurate. But it does bring me to, so in the original Westworld in 1973, the bad guy, the man in black was the robot and it was threatening humans. And what's clever in the modern Westworld is we've got Ed Harris being the man in black and he's a human and he is terrifying to the hosts. That is the Westworld term for all the robots. OK, um, and he's got a really unusual gun. Now, it has been sort of retconned and stuff like that, and it seems to be more modern than it should actually be. But you can always argue, well, hey, this is in the future and they just created something like this. But it's a really unusual and intricate gun. And actually, it is a real gun. It's a the research and it's called the Lamat 1861 pistol. So hey, 
that one could actually be used in Civil War movies. And indeed, I believe that the Confederate states in these in the Civil War, because uh, Alexandre Lamette uh, was based in New Orleans, so he was in the South, and so yeah, he he armed some Confederates with his pistol. But what's interesting about it is it had a nine-round cylinder. Most guns had either five or six rounds, so this had three more rounds, or nearly 50% more, depending on how you're measuring it up. And in the middle, there was a uh, there was a smooth bore barrel that could fire buckshot, and that was underneath a pistol barrel. So basically, it had a shotgun cartridge as well as the nine uh, round cylinder. Now, what this was using was it was using black powder. Um, I'll come into the te technology of that in a moment. Bottom line, it was a clever design that was a little ahead of the technology of the day. And what that meant was it jammed. It needed excessive cleaning. And it was never became a particularly popular pistol. But when it was working, it was better than anything else out there. And actually, you do see a, a scene where the man in black is you know, sort of re reassembling that particular revolver. And it does look a little bit fiddly. And that's genuinely what you have to do with the thing. But I mentioned there black powder. And this is where I come on to what I mentioned right at the beginning about the Labelle 1888. You see, there are... There are basically three important eras in firearms, in gunpowder type guns. Uh, the, the first era is when we have those incredibly slow firing muskets. Look, there was one person killed at the Battle of Agincourt. That happened in 1415 with a handgun, which was little more than a metal tube and, and a wick, okay? Uh, and what we know is in that battle, it was the longbow that did all the damage. And actually, we know that the Mongols used it against the Mamluks in this game, in this battle in... Oh, sorry, actually, it was the Mamluks who, fought, who used it against the Mongols, apologies, in this mid-13th century. So we're talking in the 1200s in the Middle East. So guns have been around for a long time. But what you've got once we're into the proper era of firearms is you've got those, you've all seen this, this painfully slow loading process where you put a ball down the barrel, then you put the gunpowder and the wadding and you put a little wire thing in it and you sort of jam it down and eventually you fire it. And you'd be lucky to fire two, maximum three shots in a minute, okay? So then somebody invented the bullet where basically all that gunpowder and the ball were in the same thing. But the thing about gunpowder, and you've probably seen this in reenactments, is when they fire, you get this huge puff of smoke. That is black powder. And rifles using black powder obviously give away the position of anybody firing them. So I'm not saying that the Labelle 1888 was the very first gun to use to not use black powder, but actually use something that was smokeless. It's called gun cotton. But it was the first mass-produced bolt-action rifle to do it. It was used by the French in 1888. And as soon as that rifle came out and started being mass-produced by the French army, it made everybody else's guns and rifles in their armies obsolete. Because suddenly you had rifles that didn't give away where you were. So you you could, you know, you might hear the gunshot echoing through the canyon, but I don't know where the shooter is. And that gives you a huge, huge advantage. Um, it also explains why an awful lot of these old-fashioned 
revolvers that you see, particularly in old-timey movies, and like like silent movies, is you see smoke puffing out of them everywhere. They're actually using real bullets. They they didn't have blanks in those days. And actually they would use to advertise, you know, come and see this movie, we use real bullets. And indeed, James Cagney at one point, um, uh, he, he uh, James Cagney and a few other actors actually created this association for actors because they were fed up of being shot at by real bullets in gangster movies. And that what they would do is they'd hire a marksman to make sure they shoot around the uh, the star. And you know what? They didn't always miss. Uh, and now James Cagney was never actually hurt, but on one occasion he was meant to come around a corner and there was a blast of machine gun fire which sort of took out the, the masonry near his head. And it all worked, but it was slightly off-timed and, and Cagney sort of knew that he nearly got his head blown off, basically. So he, with some other people, came together and said, you know, we need to stop doing this. But yeah, when you see in old-timey movies all this powder sort of like smoke coming out the front of the guns, that's genuinely how they fired. So you could see very quickly it would all get very smoky. And also, the, as I've already mentioned, the barrels were smooth. So in a proper Wild West gunfight, it was very hard to hit anything, quite frankly. Going back to the Lamatt 1861, the man in black's overly complicated gun, that was a black powder gun. But in the in the in the actual TV series, it doesn't produce any smoke. So clearly they're not using the right ammunition. But does that really matter seeing it's all set in the future? But what of course all this means is that you know, you, there's so much care and attention going into something like Westworld. And the thing I'm going to sort of finish off on, because, you know what, I'm, I'm only finishing off on this because I've mentioned this in other videos and podcasts and books even out there, is what Westworld taps into is this sort of fundamental desire in human beings to overcome the odds, to tell the story, uh, you know, to to sort of make that quest for, if you like, immortality either literally or through the idea of becoming a legend, a hero in your own lifetime. And you absolutely get the idea that that would be attractive. Would you spend $20,000 to go to a park like that for one day? I don't know. That's on you. But you have there, there has been, for example, some very rich businessmen who've paid millions of dollars to fly into space, uh, going via the Russian space program rather than NASA. And you know, they thought it was well worth spending literally millions to just be up in space for a couple of days. And, you know, there is, if you want to look for a record, there is the world's first space tourist not being sent up on a mission, but just wanting to go up and see what it was like. Because, of course, there has to be at some point. And Westworld does absolutely tap into that, be it the old one or the new one. We love to tell stories. And with the modern Westworld, what they've done is they switched it around. If you like, the human beings are the danger to the robots rather than the other way around. And we've now got, in season two, this idea of these robots trying to come to terms with sentience. The fact that they, you know, they're no longer slaves to the, their human masters. And are they, will they be able to create uh, their own world? And, you know, why hunt them the humans, because that makes them surely as bad as their masters. But, you know, they're being logical, they're being attacked. So there's a lot of big themes going on, something where there's an awful lot of shooting and beautiful photography as well, which is what makes 
the modern era of TV, this absolute renaissance. It started with The Sopranos. Yes, it's another HBO series, but look, you know, Netflix is knocking it out the park and you got something like Amazon Prime. Not all their stuff's good, but then you get something like, for example, um, Man in the High Castle, which is also really interesting. Maybe I'll do a, a podcast on that at some point as well. So you've got yeah, and all, all those streaming services have upped the game even of regular TV out there, be it your CBSs or BBCs, you know, more money's being put into it. And, and interestingly, going back to Westworld in 1973, it was just a fun movie for people to go and see. And actually, if you wanted great drama in 1973, you went to the cinema. You didn't watch it on TV because it was all a bit cheap and cheerful on TV. And uh, it was very rarely an overarching series on, on a story over a TV series. You could sit down and watch any episode, basically, of Starsky and Hutch, and it doesn't matter what, or, what order you saw it in, for example. Whereas nowadays, t TV is where the great drama is. Cinema, occasionally, yes, there are great, great movies out there, like The Revenant, for example, really enjoyed that. Um, uh, you know, pretty much anything by Christopher Nolan, like Dunkirk. Um, however... You know, the, the, you can't deny that the cinema is now largely a place of spectacle where you go and see a superhero movie and there's nothing wrong with that. But the really good drama with the really interesting themes, that's the stuff that's on TV today. And it, it switched around since the, the since the first Westworld to the new Westworld. There's been a switching around not only of protagonist and antagonist, there's also been a switching around a quality of product between cinema and complexity of product, shall we say, between cinema and TV as well. So Westworld is important in terms of understanding a little bit about ourselves. It's a little bit about, it's, it's important about understanding a little bit about how we are entertained today and the story of TV drama right now and the health of it, which is pretty rude, I'd, I'd hasten to add. And also, it's telling you uh, a little bit about the actual history of the West. You know, just sort of sneaking in the background with various different weapons and clothing and comments and social forays and things like that. So it's an excellent TV series. And yes, I've revealed some of the hard facts behind it. Um, and I would recommend absolutely going back and watching the original Westworld movie at some point. See how far it's come. See if you can spot the beats that have been taken by Terminator. It's, you know, you could do worse for two hours and also see how far things have come and things like computer graphics too. Thank you very much for listening. Once again, I must remind you that uh, please continue this conversation. When this podcast finishes, Neon doesn't stop existing. There are obviously more podcasts to listen to. You can go and check out some of them on the website, which is neonpodcast.com. We're Neon Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. You want to talk to me? It's Jem Deducci. I'm sure the links will all be in the description below. You want to ask me a question? You want to challenge me on a neon? I've managed to do it about a sci-fi show about killer robot cowboys, okay? I think I can do it on almost anything. So thank you very much for listening. More neon podcast goodness coming soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.